Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been collecting and using data forever. We might not call it data, we might call it information, we might call it knowledge, but it's all the same thing. This is Think Digital Futures. This episode is about a global movement taking hold in Australia, all around data. It's a move to reclaim and decolonise data that's being collected about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but not for them. It is used to construct a picture of who Indigenous peoples are. We've had very little say in what that picture looks like. It's time to truly examine who data is collected for and who is disregarded in the process. And this question for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is a question of sovereignty. This episode, you'll be hearing from two key players in the Indigenous data sovereignty movement in Australia, from the Mayam Narawingari Data Sovereignty Collective and the Australian Indigenous Governance Institute. For Indigenous peoples around the world, controlling data isn't just about controlling the stats. It means taking charge of your own story. Hello. Hi, Shane. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Let's take it away. Hi, my name is Maggie Walter. I'm a Palawa woman from the uh, Perabina people in northeastern Tasmania and a member of the Tasmanian Briggs family. I'm also the Pro Vice Chancellor, Aboriginal Research and Leadership, and Professor of Sociology at the University of Tasmania. Okay, we'll start off with I don't know if this is an easy question or not, but we'll start off with the basics. What is data sovereignty? Okay, so, so data sovereignty is a basic idea that the people of whom the data are about should have the right to decide what data are collected, how they're used, who has access to it, etc. So for Indigenous data sovereignty, it's around the idea that Indigenous peoples really do, we do have the right to determine how our data is collected, accessed, analysed, interpreted, managed, disseminated, reused, all of those things. The, the problem is that it, up until now it is not. Certainly in Australia and many other countries around the world, Indigenous data has become a major resource, but without the benefits of those data flowing to the people who it actually is about. Right. So when we say data, what does that cover exactly? Look, it covers everything. So the focus of the Indigenous data sovereignty movement has been around statistical data, especially population-level statistics, but that is not only what it covers. So Indigenous data refers to any information in any format that impacts on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's lives uh, at the individual or collective level. So that means data about our traditional ways, about knowledge, about culture, about our, our sites, all of those things come under the sort of the purview of Indigenous data sovereignty. Right. So when did this data collection actually start? Like, are we going all the way back to historical ethnographies? 
it's all of those data. So ethnography has been taking data from Indigenous peoples across the world for a very long time and then has been presenting those in the form of papers or books or whatever. And it's not saying that those data have been misused. It's not saying that it hasn't been appropriate and, and some of those things have been really good. But the problem is that the data have been taken out of the hands of the people to whom it belongs and then have been used without those people actually being in the decision-making seat about what happens to those data. Is all information then that pertains to Indigenous Australians Indigenous data? Absolutely. And what is it used for? What has it been used for traditionally? Well, traditionally, most of the data have really been, and I'm here I'm moving back to the sort of population level data, but we can look at some of the ethnographic data in the same way. It is used to construct a picture of who Indigenous peoples are to mostly the non-Indigenous population, including our political systems and the policymakers. That picture is constructed by others. And the data that is used to construct that picture uh, is also selected by others. So we've had very little say in what that picture looks like. And that has been to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's disadvantage because most of those data, including some of the ethnographic data, have been the da- what we call the data of disregard. So they have portrayed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in a certain way, in a very limited, decontextualised way. For example, if you want to find out how much Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people smoke or drink or how small Aboriginal babies are at birth, lots of data. If you want to find out other things around, say, for example, how we do family or how families operate across households, no data. There's a sort of a a trope of deficit that has just informed all of the data selection so that it's always about our problems. While we understand that, you know, not all that data are bad, that focus on our problems means that that is how we are portrayed and that's how we are seen. And even, you know, concerningly, that's even how we are seen to ourselves. This data of of disregard, where where do you think this process starts? Look, you know, the the earliest inquiry in colonised Australia into the circumstances of the natives happened, I think, in 1857 in Victoria. If you look at that, it doesn't look that much different to the socioeconomic indicators that are sort of coming out in 2018. So we've got this long history of Aboriginal people being marginalised within the colonies, and we had this constant lens looking at that. But, you know, this is 160 years later, and there doesn't seem to be much change where we're just sort of seen as maybe not competent to be making the decisions about what sort of data should be collected about us or be involved in that. And I think that really in 2018, that's the time that that changed. Is data sovereignty a right? Absolutely, it's a right. And it comes very clearly under the United Nations Declaration of the Right of Indigenous Peoples. There are a whole lot of articles within the the UNDRIP that pertain to data. And also UNDRIP itself, to, to be able to implement any of the articles in there, are reliant on data. And the data that we would need to implement those largely do not exist. So data is at the centre. It doesn't solve all the problems. It's not the whole solution, but is at the centre of change for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and us being able to be involved in our own, making our own narrative and also making our own future. 
Can you tell me where this realization about these huge gaps in data collection came from? Like, is there a is there a beginning point to the idea of indigenous data sovereignty in Australia? Uh, look, there's a beginning point, as informally in sort of so in 2015, Professor John Taylor and uh, Professor Tahu Kukatai came together with funding from the Australian Academy of the, of the Sciences and put on a data sovereignty workshop. And they brought a number of people, including myself, from across Canada, the US, Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia together to actually discuss Indigenous data sovereignty. And so that's when the movement got going in Australia. But people have been making these complaints, I guess, over quite a number of years without really having the concept to wrap them up. And certainly I know the people meeting with the United Nations on the different committees around Indigenous rights have been talking about the problems with data. So it has been gathering steam for quite a while, but it's now quite become quite formalised. Yeah, that's so interesting. You say that, you know, these complaints have been around a while without the words to express them. Uh, yeah. Why do you think this movement's gathering steam now? Um, because I think that it's really honed in on what has been worrying a lot of people for a long time. So... Now, for example, I went to a, an Indigenous Data Sovereignty uh, Symposium held by the University of Melbourne last year, and a, a lot of very strong community people were there talking about their own communities and the problems that they couldn't get the data they needed to actually put in programs. Well, they were putting in programs, but they were putting in programs that they really needed data to make a stronger case, to give them more confidence in what they were doing, and it just wasn't available. So there's been a lot of people concerned about the data of disregard and the lack of data for a long time, but have never had a focus. And so the Indigenous data sovereignty movement, being global, has allowed that focus to sort of come into view. If we're looking at data collection that's mostly happening, I guess, in the background and at levels of government and business that aren't necessarily transparent, how does data sovereignty filter down then to, to people's everyday lives? I think it, it's people saying no. So data are collected from people, from organisations and other things. And if the data system is not going to serve Indigenous needs, then there has to be a query about why would we still allow that collection when it may be going to be working against us. And, and this is not a new idea. So uh, First Nations in Canada uh, back in the late 90s introduced the OCAP system which is about that any data about First Nations people has to be owned, that's the O, it is also controlled, it also has access, and it also has possession. And those OCAP principles now are quite strongly embedded into many statistical organisations in Canada, including Statistics Canada. Right. What so, does that look like? Is it just like an opt-out box or like oh, how, how does that work? No, it, even, even it's important. It's not about collection. It's about the design stage making decisions about what data are collected. So First Nations people are involved at that process and actually get a say at that at that beginning level. They're also able to initiate their own data collection and say, look, we really need data around this rather than data around that. So it's it's not a simple process. It's not easy, but I think that we can't keep going the way we're doing it. It sounds so complex. I mean, it seems like a mammoth task. 
It does. And of course, it is impossible, I think, to get Indigenous data sovereignty around every data. For example, I, I, among many other Aboriginal people, are very loath to put our Aboriginal identity on any place where data can be collected. Because at the moment, when you fill that out, you wonder where those data go. And obviously, for some things, like for health and other things, I put those, I do tick that box. But I would like more say as somebody ticking that box and somebody whose data are being collected around health in, in what happens to those data, who gets access to them and for what purposes. So it, it's always a measure. But I, I would think in, in just general things that maybe you should think twice. You know, if it's not, if you can't think of how it benefits Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people actually identifying, then maybe we should think about whether we do or we don't. I asked Maggie about the recent Data Sovereignty Summit held at ANU. So we're at the Mayam Nairi Wingari Indigenous Data Sovereignty Collective, which is a, a group of academics. We combined with the Australian Indigenous Governance Institute to run a summit on Indigenous data sovereignty to actually inform people in the community, so the peak organisations and community groups, about what Indigenous data sovereignty and Indigenous data governance are, but also to get people's thoughts about what a sort of set of protocols, a beginning set of protocols around Indigenous data might look like and the concerns and the issues people had. And so we had um, well, close to 50, I think, uh, delegates from every single state and across multiple areas attend. And we also had our colleagues from uh, New Zealand, Aotearoa New Zealand, come across and also present on how Indigenous data sovereignty is working there. What was the atmosphere like? Really positive. Again, people recognised instantly when they start to read about Indigenous data sovereignty and Indigenous data governance. That is something that is important to them. It is something that they're interested in and that it is something that they should engage with. It seems like a movement that's really unifying and, and empowering. I, I think it is unifying and empowering in a really positive way. And um, I, I don't want to give the impression that somehow this is sort of something in us against them with the big data agencies. It's not. I think what we're proposing is, is a way forward that will actually change the landscape and actually provide us probably with some far greater insights into sort of policies and other things that will will close the gap much more than has been done in the past. Has there been a willingness to talk? I mean, I feel like sovereignty is a is a word that historically hasn't been well received by the government. Yeah, no, and it is. Look, it's one of those red button words. You sort of say sovereignty and, and people sort of hit minds shut down. But if, if you look at actually what it means, it, it means about rights related to data. It doesn't mean a sort of like being a sovereign uh, as in a king. The, the word sovereignty can scare people, but it's it's really about improving the data landscape for everybody involved. I mean, especially in the past year, sovereignty has been perceived as like almost a threat. Mm-hmm. And, and some people have suggested that we don't use the word sovereignty, but it is the Indigenous data sovereignty movement globally. So, and we are part of that global network. And, and I think also that, you know, it, it's important not to shy away from words, but rather to explain what they mean, rather than decide some words uh, cannot be used. And what's your outlook for the next couple of years? We will be moving with the collective to, which is a, a much broader group of people, to actually really advance the idea of Indigenous data sovereignty. 
and that works within our own communities as well so people understand that when we think we need data there are processes to go through to make sure that we, we're doing it in a way that does provide the best decision making that we can because you know just like many of the agencies have been limited in how they've understood Indigenous data that that same sort of mindset is, has applied to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as well. You, you tend to think that there is only one way of doing it and it's not until you sort of bust open the paradigm and sort of think, wow, we, we, we don't have to do it like that. Um, there are, are lots of other ways to do it. So it's about educating our own people and, and supporting our own people. That was Maggie Walter from the University of Tasmania. Up next, you'll be hearing from Bayami Williamson from the Australian National University about how data sovereignty is deeply intertwined with data governance. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. This episode is all about data sovereignty. Bayami Williamson was also at the recent Indigenous Data Sovereignty Summit at the Australian National University. And we caught up afterwards to chat about what data governance could mean for the future of sovereignty in Australia. So my name is Bayami Williamson. I'm a Uwario man from northwest New South Wales, southwest Queensland, goes over the border, um, and I'm a research and development officer at the Australian Indigenous Governance Institute. At the Governance Institute, we deal more with the governance bodies, both peak bodies and governing sort of community governing bodies, as well as just sort of non-incorporated bodies, people who just kind of come together and want to do things for their people. So the main part that we're most interested in is why are people wanting to collect data and how does it support them to make the best decisions they can for their people and their communities? So is this on a community level or a government level or, or both? What do you see mostly? I think it goes across all the different levels. You know, one of the early contestations that we identified in this field was that obviously people, when they think about data and data collection, they think big sets of data. They think the ABS, they think the census, you know, they think prison rates, they think kind of kids in schools and, you know, the, the data that goes across with that. What we find is a lot of them huge, really big data sets that are state and national, whilst they are critical and they are really vital in this whole picture, it's not data for local community. It's data that's kind of gathered from different communities and only made available at the larger levels. And so whilst that is, a, like I said, a critical part of it, it doesn't actually serve the purposes for community because the data just kind of loses its meaning when it's rolled into the larger sets. And so what we find is that communities are constantly giving the data, but it doesn't actually empower their local decision-making. Yeah, what kind of data do communities want? What are the kind of projects that they're interested in? It all depends on the communities. And I think that that's where the self-determination comes into it as well. Different communities want different things, you know, based on geographical location, based on historical circumstances, based on whether or not they have minerals and resources on their land, whether or not they're located on the coast or inland. Different communities across Australia want different things and it completely aligns with their own value sets. Understanding and respecting the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and how they differ and the fact that they do want different data sets is itself really important to acknowledge and engage with. So diversity is a part of sovereignty? Absolutely. Any data that doesn't respect the diversity that exists across Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia is not going to serve us. Is it uh, at odds then with the, the idea of big data sets? 
Well, it's at odds with what big data sets currently mean, but I don't think it's at odds with what big data sets could mean. There's certainly nothing to say that that information and data gathered at local community levels can't be given back to them. It's just that there's no funding, there's no resources, they're not, you know, the systems to to do that are not built in. And with this field, we're hoping that organisations like the ABS and state-based institutions and government agencies develop the skills and the capacity to be able to give that data back to the community so that they can use it for their own purposes. All of this discussion is mostly happening at a research level or an organisation level. So how is this knowledge then transferred into communities to enact data sovereignty on their own? Yeah, sure. That's a very good question. That's actually the reason why we convened the summit, because as um, one of the leaders of the Mayim Nairi Wingara Data Sovereignty Group, Professor Maggie Walter said, those guys in the academic space, they can go around forever and keep giving presentations. They can write as many papers as they, as they want and keep writing them and keep getting professional exposure forever. But the question of how to bring the work, the ideas and the underlying philosophies of Indigenous data sovereignty and data governance to community is the challenge. And so that's why we held the summit to bring together people from community, people who work in the sector, people who engage with data every day and ask them what they need in terms of tools and also what Indigenous data governance means to them in their everyday work. And I think that we did that in some of bringing together some basic principles of what Indigenous data sovereignty means. Things like exercising control of the data collection and creation process, things like making data available at a community level, identifying data that empowers self-determination, data structures that are accountable to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, communities and First Nations, very importantly, First Nations. And, um, yeah, data that just kind of respects our knowledges and worldviews and the fact that we think, behave and act differently. So we kind of feel like we got there. We're trying to consolidate that and we'll look at the next steps from here on. Yeah. What what might that sovereignty look like? Say, um, like some of the examples you mentioned, say at the data collection level, how might that go in practice? Well, one of the first things, one of the massive limitations is that a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities don't actually have the capacity to store their own data. You're talking about hardware, you know, data infrastructure, and a lot of people don't have that. So if to enact meaningfully enact Indigenous data sovereignty means having ownership of the data, it actually means investing in some of the infrastructure. So that's just one way that it could be progressed into the future. Another way is organisations like the ABS actually investing in ways to give the data back to communities from you know, from, from, from where it came. So the data that communities can then use that data. You know, they might know how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live in their, in their community, how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, access the different services in the area. So they're just a couple of the ways in which communities can exercise data sovereignty. The underlying principle that it's data that is useful for our peoples is the underlying philosophy if it's not useful for us, well, then it's useless. There's a tendency to view data, data sets and the information that comes from it as something really abstract and something that doesn't have like a meaningful impact on people's everyday lives. Mm. Whereas the Indigenous Data Sovereignty Movement is saying like, look, look, this has a huge impact. 
Yeah, absolutely. We were lucky enough with the summit to be joined by four Maori data practitioners, I guess, connected with their Maori data sovereignty network over there. And they said something that really resonated, I think, with myself and a larger group. And that is the person who controls the data controls the story. And it's the one thing that so many of our communities have not been in, in charge of for so long was this, is the story of our communities. When data is collected about us, it's often, well, most often framed in the negative context. You know, it's all about blaming Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It's all about where we're deficient, where we need support, you know, and it just feeds this this insatiable need for non-Indigenous Australians to come in as like saviours, you know, and we know what's best for, for these people. If we are able to arrest control of the data that comes out of our communities, we're able to pair that with the local knowledges so we don't just know what the issues are, but we know why there are issues and we can identify some of the solutions. Well, then it puts us in the driver's seat to tell our own stories and to put in place things that can, um, you know, can support our communities in any way that we need. What's the awareness of Indigenous data sovereignty like in Australia? Is it a big issue? I think so. More and more people that are kind of catching on, especially with the national closing the gap targets, you know, people are starting to question very much, you know, wh- where are they getting that information from? And there's a lot of, not a lot of informa- information on it. So I feel like Aboriginal people and communities and Torres Strait Islander people and communities are really starting to question constantly and consistently question the larger government agencies as to where they're getting their data, who's getting it, why why are they getting certain sets of data and not other, and then who's interpreting it, who's telling the story. You know, we're not just accepting the common narrative that's being placed on us, as I said, a narrative that blames us and that paints us as the problem. Yeah, I mean, close the gap, they're three words that carry a lot of history. Mm. And I guess when you think about it, that is only based on statistics. Yeah, absolutely. And even the term close the gap as well. Like people think about, you know, non-Indigenous people being up here and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being down there. And is that even the case? It depends what you're talking about. So even the language around closing the gap is framed in a deficit discourse. And then the data that is produced through that process, of course, is going to to replicate that. Learning to question the data, question the way that it's framed and, you know, collect data where you're trying to actually find out what the issues are rather than just indicators of an issue that there is no data collected being being collected around. Even data collected on students going to school, high school students, primary students, the data is always on how many students are graduating, but it implicitly identifies how many students are not graduating as well. But it's it's still places Aboriginal people as the problem. It doesn't, the data doesn't identify why students don't want to go to school. You know, the data doesn't identify how many Aboriginal teachers are in school, whether or not there's correlations there. So the data is just there to identify statistics, but they don't reveal the problem. Yeah, there's an interesting contrast there between, I guess, the example you gave of for data sovereignty, you would then need to look at the connecting reasons why data infrastructure isn't available in regional communities. So highlighting something that is interconnected with all these other problems versus something like close the gap statistics, which is just a table with numbers on it that's not connected to any sort of social or political or economic context. Yeah. None of the data that's collected about Aboriginal people tells a story of what's going on in communities, you know, like you get, there's a lot of negative health statistics, but no one ever stops and questions why chronic health problems persist. No one questions why for the millions and millions of dollars invested in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, why there haven't been any better 
outcomes in the health statistics. You know, so that's the kind of data that we actually need. What's what's the next step then for for your organisation? Well, we're putting together from the summit a collective, an Indigenous data collective throughout Australia. So that's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, professionals who just work every day with this stuff and um, asking them to give us guidance really because we we really want to make this movement applicable and real for the people who engage with this stuff every day, talking about teachers, talking about nurses, talking about, you know, local CEOs of corporations, talking about you know, local councillors, uh, people who are young Aboriginal people who are opening their own businesses, students, you know, these are the people who we want this stuff to really have a meaningful impact on. And are you, are you positive about the future? Absolutely. Um, I think we have to be. Um, but I feel like it's kind of, it's something that's getting more and more traction. And I think after the summit, for the first time, we actually feel like we're in control of the language of data sovereignty and data governance. And that in itself is a massive achievement. What does that control mean? At the moment, it just means controlling the language, controlling the key terms. Like I said, having control of that is a powerful thing. If there are any, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this, we need as many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with the skills and with the capacity to participate, you know, to really go on to take an interest, to understand what this stuff is about because it informs their work and it's for everyone. And perhaps most importantly, I think the time has come for our people and communities to question constantly, question non-Indigenous institutions and government institutions in Australia about their data, about who's collecting it, why they're collecting it and how it's supporting self-determination. And if it's not, actually saying no, saying no, we will not participate in this process because this data does not serve us. Enacting self-determination sometimes actually saying no. And I don't think we see that enough. So it'd be good to see more. That was Bayami Williamson from the Australian National University. And that's it for Think Digital Futures today. This show is supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Thanks to Maggie Walter and Bayami Williamson for their contributions to this episode. You heard music today from Nocturnum, Poddington Bear and with the theme music, as always, by Joe Coning. This show is produced at the studios of 2SER, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. We'll be back soon with a fresh new ep, but don't forget to support independent community radio by following us, leaving a review or sharing us with your friends. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening.